Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hi, I'm Martin Tyler. You're listening to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. And it's live. Don't think we're going to beat that as an intro anytime soon. That was Sky Sports commentator Martin Tyler. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the Wisdom Cricket Monthly duo of Joe Harmon and Phil Walker. Welcome Joe. Joe, you had a nice chat with Martin Tyler earlier in the week. I did. I had a lovely chat. Two chats, actually. He called back to clarify something from the piece that I sent him for, for approval. It's for our feature, my perfect day at the cricket. Uh, and he's got quite a good connection with cricket. So he actually was 12th man for Surrey once uh, in the 80s. Yeah. Um, they they were yeah lost a few players. He was there watching. They said you got to get your kit on, and he he was telling man for two days. He didn't actually field, but he was carrying out drinks and and equipment. And he lived with Bob Willis and Jeff Howarth really? as well. So two Test captains. Superb work. Phil, you were opposed to that going in. You want that on the, on the record? I, I just just thought it, a bit, thought it was a bit cringe. Don't uh, don't cheapen the podcast. Is this football? encroaching on cricket's territory that you're objecting to I've always been uncomfortable with that two very distinct games just leave it leave it alone if I'm not allowed to talk about Spurs then um, I think we should leave football right out of it we frankly. did once have a podcast where we talked about Spurs for the first 10 I minutes I know I know and I regretted we... it I recognised my error um, Joe... talking of errors <laughs> yeah yeah good Joe what was your moment of the week uh, my moment of the week was, I guess, more a moment that, that didn't happen. Uh, the first semi-final of the Women's T20 World Cup, which is, first of all, say the second semi-final has also happened. Australia have gone through, narrowly beating South Africa. But the first final, as was widely anticipated uh, look, with a look at the forecast, just didn't happen. And as has also been widely discussed, there was no reserve day for the semi-finals of the T20 World Cup, which... Uh, is silly. I think we can agree. Um, there was initial suggestions that this is the ICC not taking women's cricket seriously enough. That that's not true. This is the same for the men's T Twenty World Cup previously, and will be the same in November unless they change it. Um, doing things stupidly twice doesn't necessarily make it any better, though. I mean, this is it's been a massive oversight, uh, and it's important here, I think, not to get sucked into the fact that we are. We are English, we are English supporters, we want to see the team doing well and that is obviously gutting from that perspective. Uh, and a few people have pointed out that a lot of England supporters weren't complaining too much when England won the World Cup on a sort of arbitrary boundary countback rule. But this isn't about England and in- India, it's about the Women's T20 World Cup getting the respect it deserves. And I think women's cricket, particularly uh, 
with men's tournaments, the next marquee series is always around the corner. There'll be another thing to concentrate on. Women's cricket is very much focused around these big tournaments. And when they don't play out as you would hope, it has a really big effect. And up to this point, it had been a really good tournament. But the fact that there was no reserve days has undersold the whole thing, really. And the ICC have got lucky because another rule which might have passed some people by was in the group stage, 10 overs per side constituted a game. Five overs. Sorry, five overs constituted a game. Uh, And then the semi-finals, they decided to up that to 10 overs. So the combination of upping it to 10 overs and not having a reserve day was asking for trouble, uh, and and they got it. Uh, it, Were it not for the clouds breaking, um, we could have ended up with the Australia game not being completed because they decided to make sure that you had to have 10 overs per side. Senior figures from all four countries participating in the semi-finals have come out and said they would have liked to reserve day. So Cricket Australia CEO Kevin Roberts actually asked if it was asked the ICC if it was possible for a reserve day to be added to the competition after they saw the dreadful forecast after the group stage. The captains of India, Safka and England have all come out saying they wanted reserve days. But this is I think quite an important part of the discussion, all the boards signed off the playing conditions before the tournament started and no one had a problem with it. So whilst the players are obviously, uh, you know, distraught they didn't get an opportunity to play in a World Cup semi-final, um, the, the boards, I don't think, have that much room to complain. Well, no, they don't have any room to complain and that's why it's so so unfortunate for the players who you have to feel hugely sorry for. Um, yeah, the question is, who who is approving these? Why are the captains not being consulted on these things before they get passed? Are the national boards really thinking about what could actually happen? You've got to wor- imagine the worst case scenario. This was not even that unlikely. I mean, there is a lot of rain in Sydney in March. This oh, it's, it's the worst month of the year for, uh, for, for rain in Sydney. So I looked up, there hasn't been an, an international game of cricket played this late in the year in March in Sydney with the exception of ICC tournaments, since 1985. So Australia don't schedule games in March. 13.3 days per month in March rain in Sydney. That's very frequent. So you'd think having a reserve day would be quite important. And as I understand it, the forecast tomorrow is, is pretty decent. So there's going to be... It's just... It, it's a bit of a mess. And now the ICC have to work out whether they're going to change the regulations for the Men's T20 World Cup in October. Um, if they do, they'll come under criticism because they've changed it for the men's and they had this mess for the women's. But they've also got to think about just getting the tournament right. And I think from now on, hopefully, this will be a wake-up call that reserve days for semi-finals in major tournaments should be an absolute given. Yeah, it's quite. I think it's, it is quite. You've mentioned it already, but it is quite important to clarify that although the men's 50-over World Cup had reserve days for the semi-finals, the men's T20 World Cup net this year does not at the moment have reserve days scheduled. But yeah, I don't really see... I understand that there there's a massive cost to hosting, uh, to, to, to scheduling in reserve days, but we had them for the for the 50-over World Cup and we needed one. We would have been deprived of the greatest World Cup final of all time if they weren't reserve days. New Zealand would have been knocked out by virtue of finishing lower than India in the group stage in the World Cup. So it does make an enormous difference scheduling them in. Obviously, a lot of the focus has been on the, the lack of reserve day, but ultimately England are out of the tournament because of their defeat against Safka early on. That's a that's a fair way of differentiating between two teams that that can't play. It's what Heather Knight said at the end. In the end, uh, we're victims of our own inconsistency. We lost that opening game against South Africa. If they'd won it, they would have been in that second semi-final. Um, but it's also the vagaries of the weather as well. I mean, you know, you could have won the group and and still gone out, and you could have finished second and gone through, just depending on when that rain fell. One thing that was never in doubt is that a lot of rain was going to fall that day and it's remarkable really 
considering the puddles on the outfield, that they managed to get uh, 20, no, 30 overs or thir- 33 overs just at the, you know, just before the 11th hour um, of the second of the second game. But Heather Knight is pragmatic, uh, as always, and increasingly um, impressive in front of the camera. I think now she's definitely the leader of that team, and and she said in her own restrained way. Uh, just quote, I really hope that we're the last team to ever exit an ICC tournament in that way. Um, never a truer word said, really. It's just so desperately sad. It's desperately sad um, for uh, for the game's reputation in England. Now, you know, we might be being parochial here. We might be um, kicking off because our team's gone out. I don't think it is that. Um, the, cricket is a small world and we have to protect it uh, across the board. Um from my perspective, uh, having followed cricket and been enthralled to it since I was a kid, it's always had an image problem. It's always always appeared to be a bit fusty, a bit safe, uh, a little bit um, risk averse. Uh, it doesn't have a reputation for being particularly quick witted or daring to think on its feet. Um, and this is an example of it, as far as I can see. And, and for me, the, the sadness is the impact that it has. Um, on the game's reputation in this country, among the among the, the 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 potential new audience, you know, this sort of perhaps mythic but certainly coveted new audience that we talk of, and and we we put a lot of truck by these world tournaments, and especially the women's world tournaments, because they don't have as big a cut of the landscape as the men, and so you put them front and centre of, of cricket's consciousness. Uh, you try and drive interest in in the UK for this. Uh, brilliant, albeit still nascent game in the public consciousness, and uh, to that that kind of agnostic group out there that might be mildly interested, they see that an England representative team are in a world tournament. Okay, well let's go and see what's going on here, and then they see see them play so well against the West Indies, and they see that there's a bit of vim and vigour around that team, and then they get to a semi final, and you tune in, and then you discover. Oh right. Well, the rain that was forecast four days ago is now wiping it out, and there's no other um, allowance uh, for a for a showpiece semi final. What do we just shrug our shoulders and, and just walk away? And, th- and it's 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 the impact that it has on that on that, that potential new audience that upsets me. Yeah, and it's another year until the next major tournament, and that's in New Zealand. The 50 over World Cups in New Zealand. That's that's a harder tournament to watch. I know Australia is also that side of the world, but you have day nights and T20. It's it's an easier tournament to follow. Um, so I'd imagine it'd be harder for the public, public imagination to be captured in a 50-over World Cup in New Zealand. Yeah, and from purely cricketing sense, it's been quite hard to work out what, how good this England side are from this tournament as well because they, they were poor against South Africa, batted, I thought, really poorly. But there were certainly signs that they were finding their feet. For what it's worth, I would have made India favourites ahead of this semi-final. I think too many of England's batters struggle when there's not pace on the ball. Wyatt, Beaumont. Um, Jones in particular and Siva was really holding the whole thing together that's not to say Siva couldn't have won a game on her own she she is that good and and the, the shame is that we we'll, won't get a chance to to see how it have played out and, yeah and, and there is a there's a human element to this as well you know there is there are some players in that that side um, who won't play in another world tournament you know, the majority will sure but there's some players who are in that well, Catherine setup. Brunt might well have played her last that, world cup game yeah yeah uh and that's a very fair point. Among the younger players as well, some of whom would never have dreamt of getting to this point. You penny for their thoughts now. 
penny for their thoughts that the game didn't show sufficient flexibility, sufficient wit and imagination just to ensure that you gave this thing the best chance of taking place. And as you say, it was interesting that the national boards were united in trying to engineer this reserve day equally. It was there in the small print before the tournament was signed off. Now, um, you know, I spoke to somebody within the setup, and there's no sense of seething injustice because the essential feeling is, well, we didn't argue then, so we can't really argue now. Um, but that's an understandable, pragmatic position. I don't think that's going to fly among the rank and file, among the punters, among the, among that that new audience that we're so desperate to try and engage. Um, England are out of the tournament, so chance to reflect on how how they did overall. Joe, you you alluded to Nat Sivers' performances over the tournament. She was excellent, as was Heather Knight. You you kind of think that how, even though Sivers done so well and has has had a brilliant England career to the point, and she's only twenty seven, you think that she should have done even better potentially? I do. It sounds like a bit of an odd thing to say because she's won a World Cup. She's been a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year. She's invented her own shot. But I think, and we've started to see as certainly as a as a batter, just how good she is recently for me she should bat three in every format um her bowling is useful but it's not so influential that I think that I think it should really come into the equation of deciding where she bats she just bats for as long as, as as England can get her to and in this tournament she's just a she's a class above really and that's why I think she might have underperformed a little bit but she's 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 27 um she's the same age as as Ben Stokes when he had his not breakthrough summer exactly but the the summer he dominated English cricket and I think Sivers should be doing the same with this women's team in terms of characters couldn't be more chalk and cheese I mean she's Sivers comes across very shy in interviews um she obviously doesn't kind of drag the team with her in terms of attitude but she can in skill and she's actually she's got quite a similar skill set to to Stokes as well in terms of the way she bats, she dropped an awful catch against West Indies, but she's usually a very safe pair of hands as well. And her bowling, whilst not being her, her stronger suit, can be increasingly influential at certain points in games. So, yeah, at 27, over the next two, three years, she should be dominating not only this side, but women's cricket in the way that we've seen Elise Perry do, uh, certainly as a batter. And what I think I wrote down before this tournament in 71 games, she'd only scored five T20 international half centuries. Uh, she's got three and four innings at this this World Cup, and this is this is the sort of thing that you should be seeing from a player of this age with her experience. Um, the question is, where's the next big platform for her to do it? And and we've got to wait for a, a year for a World Cup in in New Zealand. Uh, they're obviously bilateral series between now and then, but they just they don't get the same attention. Um, Phil, also this tournament's been very exciting from an English perspective in seeing the development of three young English spinners who could form the core of the English attack for a very long time yeah Eccleston is she's number one ranked bowler in the world at the moment um, she's been around for a while but Sarah Glenn who we've talked about on this podcast as well and also Maddie Villiers who played in that last game against West Indies yeah Eccleston's outrageously good considering she's 20 years years she's old actually the youngest of the three youngest of the three but she has an aura of someone who's been there forever um, I spoke to Maddie Villiers earlier in the week uh, and she takes a lot of inspiration from the story, of, from the Eccleston story. Uh, she swerved university to throw herself fully into cricket, backed herself. This is Eccleston I'm talking about, backed herself to become um, an England player, an England player of repute, and also, crucially, a cricketer who can earn a decent living. And that wouldn't have been available a decade ago and obviously further back from there. 
Um, Eccleston's control of a situation is outstanding. Um, her control of line and length is is there for all to see. Um, her action is pure, as you see with certain left arm spinners, um, and it's it's faultless from what I can see technically. Tall, she gets dip. She she bowls at the death. She's she's superb. Um, she's rightly the number one bowler ranked at the moment in the in the world. Um, Sarah Glenn, as we've spoken about, she's a leggy, she's a wrist spinner, which, of course, England have been crying out for. She bowls it with a bit of zip as well. She's not that floaty. You know, she 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 definitely rags it down there. Uh, and then the Maddie Villiers story is, is, is a lovely one. It's frustrating that they've only been able to play together in that one game. And I imagine they would have played uh, at the SCG. Um, and if they got through, suddenly those three, that triumvirate of spinners would be playing against Australia um, and against that bunch of left-handers and and Villiers said to me as a right arm conventional off-break bowler that she would been she would have been all over that she's a she's obviously uh, an interesting character this one she's 21 years old um she swerved came, Ibiza swerved Ibiza as, as I wrote in the piece for wisdom um <laughs> she was all set to go on the to, to a full season um on the Balearics and then uh and then she got got a tap on the shoulder from Richard Bedbrook, who was coach of Surrey Stars women's side at the time. This was at the start of 2018. And he said, I want you to be a part of my setup this summer for the Kia Super League. So she thought, all right, well, maybe I will. I will give Ibiza the swerve after all. Um, and, you know, Ibiza's loss is England's gain because uh, she she's now emerged as, a, as an international potential class uh, spin bowling all rounder, I would say. She, she, she can give it a hit down the pipe but she's a brilliant fielder as well and we saw that against West Indies uh, a one-hander return catch caught and bowled in her first over it was a wicket maiden in her first appearance at a world tournament uh, but she took another absolute screamer at long on as well running in sliding in one of the practice games against Australia so she's a natural fielder and she's a natural uh, character from Essex as well um, hence hence why their media man uh, attempted to try and put the two of us in, in contact. <laughs> but she gave a great interview. Yeah. And, and the more of those kinds of characters, those kind of sort of outlying characters who make their own way into the game, the, the better, I think, for the, the overall colour and mm. vibrancy of, of, of the England setup, both for women and for men. Australia, as we mentioned, are into the final. They managed to get in a 13-over game, or 20 overs against against 13-overs. Safka had a real chance of chasing down 98 and 13-overs. Laura Wolfart and Sune Luz, but put on a great partnership that those cover drives from Wolfhart were amazing she, she, yeah 41 in 20 something balls mm. um, but they finished what six shy I think in the end um, yeah, brilliant innings by by Laura Wolfhart who opened the batting back in the 50 over stuff uh, initially came in as a young young girl brilliant technician but lost her way a little bit and has kind of reinvented herself and she got them very close. It would have been one of the all-time great mm. cameos in T20 cricket if she'd got them over the line as it was Australia got it done and and the ICC now have the the final that probably they desired whether they have the final they deserve is another question but the the final now MCG Australia India that's the one that they would have wanted it's right what, at the start. exactly it's what they'd have wanted isn't it? I mean they've got the they've got the best chance of packing the crowd in in at the MCG trying to get that uh, record attendance for a women's sporting event uh, and also the eyeballs around the world when you've got India in a cricket tournament always help as we have we've seen with the women's world cup over here 
Um, and whenever India's men play anywhere. Yeah, and a very exciting story with India as well. Shafali Verma, only 16, is now the number one ranked T20 bat- batter in the world. She's something else, isn't she? Uh, I have to say, I didn't realise she was climbing the rankings quite that quickly. That she went up from 20 to 1 in that one go. That is extraordinary, yeah. I mean, she, she hits it already probably as cleanly as, as anyone in the women's game, I'd say. Um, and it's it miles. <laughs> absolutely miles. And it's interesting because the Harman Preet hasn't had, a, hasn't had a particularly good tournament. It's played some shocking shots that I've seen. Uh, and they've really been relying on her to, to get them off to a great start. And then their bowlers are doing a fantastic job as well. Mm. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Uh, I've had a nice week, actually, yes. Thanks for asking. Um, I, saw I wasn't asking about your overall week. It was just like one, sense, one moment. In that, a cricketing yeah, sense. Stood out. Yeah. Hold on. I saw Tom Wesley in Chelmsford yesterday. Um, Having a very was, Essex week, aren't you? Phil? Yeah, that was an enlightening <laughs> ex- experience uh, to go and go and talk to him. I was there when he was called up for the for his test debut, uh, and it was it was nice to see him again. Um, I mentioned uh, Maddie, Maddie Villiers. I spoke to over the phone, but last week I went up to Ashington, uh, which is in the north. Yes, it's in Northumberland, which is really north. <laughs> It took me four and a bit hours to get up there, and it was a glorious, beautiful day. Crisp, cold, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, sun beating down on perhaps the most fertile place in on God's earth for producing world-class sportsmen. That's an astonishing claim. <laughs> it's a town of 27,000 people. It's a, it's a post-industrial pit village, and it's produced... Jackie Milburn, the godfather of Newcastle United football. Bobby Charlton, heard of him? Footballer. Yeah, yeah. Jack, Jackie Charlton, heard of him? Footballer. Two World Cup winners. Steve Harmison, uh, Ashes winner, world, former world number one. And Mark Wood, World Cup winner. Uh, so it's not a bad effort, is it? It's not a bad effort. Um, certainly within, within Britain, there is no more fertile area than that one village uh, in, the, in the north of the north of England. And you had a very wholesome day there. Turned up on the train. Old family, didn't you? <laughs> Turned up on the train. Um, Mark Wood was waiting for me on the platform, chatting to the local Labour MP we used to deliver leaflets for. I'm sure he'll thank me for, for declaring that. Uh, and then we went for a drive around the town um, to see to see the sights, so to speak. Uh, went to the old uh, the museum, the pit mining museum. Um, obviously, it closed down in the late 80s and so on. Don't need to go down that road. Uh, and then we went over to Ashington CC to the club that was opened up by Bob, the chairman, and, and Stevie, his first coach, was there, and his wife and, and five-month-old nipper, uh, Harry, they were there, and uh, his best mate, and his granddad, and his, his auntie as well. So it was a nice little Wood family reunion, um, you, se- seemingly brought together on the back of, of, of my visit, you know. And the Labour MP? Uh, was he there to greet you as well? Was this part of the red red carpet treatment? Or? No, not quite, Joe. Not quite. No, it was, it was a, a happy happenstance from, from, that um, he was there. You, you, the timing of your visit was quite interesting as well. Right, it ends yeah. up ends up being the day before it was announced that Mark Wood would miss the Sri Lanka tour, but he obviously knew at that point that he wasn't going. Yeah, so he'd found out. The, the side strain, uh, he, which he had not been able to shake fully, uh, had reoccurred and had kiboshed his trip to Sri Lanka. He'd found out the day before I went up there, um, although he anticipated it, of course. Um, he was pissed off, as he said. He was ordering his ham and peas pudding back from the local shop in Ashington and was saying, yeah, I'm pretty pissed off about it. And part of the thing that unsettles him is the perception 
and the, the the discussion around him and and almost it's in indistinguishable mark wood injuries and it's hard to separate the two terms and he's aware of that and he hates that reputation for obvious reasons um he was very keen to stress that this was a precautionary thing um he could there was talk about him getting out there for the second test match after a bit more rest in the end they decided pragmatically to give him the whole of that tour off got to bear in mind it's an own it's a two test match tour on unforgiving pitches when Jimmy Anderson went out there last time he was a yeah he was basically a waiter at mid on Stuart Broad didn't play I think Wood would have probably played because of pace through the air but it's not a big problem if he misses this one he was frustrated with himself because the same thing happened that happened before i.e he knew there was a problem and he played through it and it was the final t20 at joburg so he'd gone back he'd come home for a week gone back out for the t20s after that triumphant test tour played the three games didn't bowl great was feeling it decided that he'd put his hand up to play that last game and he, he said to me i thought i could get through it four overs thought i'd get through it and it was in the the first uh over of that final match that uh, it flared up again and he's he's frustrated with himself because so is it is it is he just frustrated with himself because i i don't know how how it works but if he is feeling an injury and he's as as he knows he's associated with having a lot of injuries in his career whose job is it to say mark maybe you don't need to play the 30 20i sure i don't know i wasn't obviously privy to the specific conversations but i think with fast bowlers there has to be an element of of truth of of confessional with a fast bowler and and there is also a large splodge of pride involved there uh and the sense that you don't want to be cowed by yet another injury that you do want to be able to blast through it now he played that world cup with uh a, a creeping problem but you got to remember he played 10 games in a row in that world cup side uh, and it was only with three balls to go of his final spell at lords when it finally collapsed. I think what's frustrated him here is that he maybe wasn't open enough with himself and wasn't cautious enough with himself to swerve it. Uh, But I don't want us to go down this road, really, of of dwelling too much on it. I mean, Mark Wood's winter has been a triumphant one. You know, he he dominated that final test match at, at, at Joe Berg and clinched that series for England, a series that they were behind in after four days of cricket. Um, written off in certain quarters, don't look too closely uh, at, at my direction, and he's he's blown them away. Now, he he will be fit, all being well, he'll be fit for the start of the summer, start of the season for, for Durham, um, and then we wait and see. What, what's interesting for me is how they manage him over the next, what, eight, ten months, because they have this T20 tournament coming up, but they also, of course, have a, a big summer as ever of test cricket, but they've also got, of course, the the five tests in India. So where, where, do, where do they prioritise the Mark Wood story? What, what are they going to do with him? How are they going to protect him uh, over the next six to eight months? will be an interesting thing. Uh, you, you'll, I think you'll be able to work out England's priorities by how they use Mark Wood and when, when and where they use Mark Wood. That's really interesting. That interview will be featured in the next Wisdom Cooking Monday. Going to come out in the next magazine, yeah. Available both in print and digital, Joe. Well done, Bill. <laughs> Before we crack on with the rest of the show... 
Kingfisher Beer are offering local cricket clubs in the UK sponsorship opportunities this summer. Kingfisher recognised the financial difficulties of running a local cricket club and as part of their continued efforts to engage with cricket fans up and down the UK, your club could benefit from their help with significant funding. In return, the tasks are simple. For Kingfisher Beer to be stocked in draft format in your local clubhouse and for the partnership to be branded in some form in and around your clubhouse, be it through advertising boards, shirt sponsorship or posters. Um, some have already benefited from the sponsorship. Um, Bruce Applin of Odiham and Greywell Cricket Club said, we added Kingfisher to our product offering and after only 12 weeks of sales, it's their best-selling lager by a mile. So get involved. The next steps are simple. Email cricket at kingfisherbeer.co.uk with your contact name, name of club, clubhouse address, Say whether or not you already sell draft beer. Uh, tell them what brands you already currently sell, your phone number and your email. And you and your club could well join the Kingfisher family. Also, a reminder, that we'll be kickstarting our brand new club cricket podcast in association with NatWest very soon. If you've got any hilarious or weird club cricket related stories, send them in to clubcricket at wisdom.com and they could be featured in the show. Any of those ones I mentioned on Friday night in the pub, any of those going to make the cut, do you think? Um, I think we might need to amend them a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the unexpurgated really, podcast. So I was going to say, they're not really PG, but they're, they're also not really 15 either. No, um, no. Yeah. Also, a reminder too, to, to sign your club up for NatWest Cricket Force, which is over t- the 27th to 29th of March that weekend. For more information, head to the ECB website. That Kingfisher offer's great. It is really good. It's really, yeah, really good. Yeah, genuinely brilliant. It's really good. Um... Moving on, my moment of the week is... No, you do do moments of the week anymore, yes? I do occasionally, when I okay. when I passionately feel I should have a moment. I, I really had a moment of the week this yes, week. Yes, he's having a moment. I'm having a moment. <laughs> um, it's, it's New Zealand's win over India. Um, it was a yes. sensational performance, sealed a 2-0 series win. We talked about last on last week's show how they would how they'd fit all the seamers in. Would they leave out Ajaz Patel? And they did in the end. They paid all seamers and it paid off. Carl Jameson in his second test won the Player of the Match award. He took a fifer at 49 as well. Bolton Southie took combined figures of 7 for 64 between them and India's second innings to bowl them out for 124. New Zealand are a seriously good test side who've had a really good winter and have a lot of bases covered. I think one way you can tell how good they are at the moment is towards the end of the game... Ian Smith was on commentary discussing how good a winter was it or how good a home summer it was for New Zealand. He said, quite good. For them, for them being England and India, just quite good. Only because is, they is got thumped in Australia. Is New Zealand temperament, Joey? It is a little bit of not wanting to get ahead of oneself, I think. But it also, they, they always beat India, really. They've got an amazing record against India uh, and got a pretty decent one against England as well. So That's why you backed India, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did. No, that's not, no comeback from that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think this is this was a different India side to the the, the the teams that have historically come to New Zealand. Though this was supposed to be a team that had most, if not all, bases covered. They've certainly coped with their seam attack. New Zealand coped with India's seam attack much better than I thought they would. Also, didn't expect Cody to have the continued slump that um, that we discussed last week. Uh, but yeah, but the, 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 there's. There's every reason they should feel very confident against whoever they play in home mm. home matches because they don't really lose them very often. So how, how do you rate New Zealand's winter? If you gave them 1-0 over England, get thumped basically in Australia and then 2-0 over India, do you think New Zealand would have taken that at the start of the winter? It's a good question. I think they pr- probably would have taken it. Two series wins out of three and three difficult series. Uh, but the manner of the Australian defeat will have really irked 
New Zealand fans, not least because it was against their trans-Tasman rivals. Mm-hmm. And there was quite a lot of hype, the MCG test, the first time New Zealand, New Zealand had been given it for a long time. So the, the India win will have kind of bandaged over some of those wounds, but it was it, that will still really, really stick in the throat for them. Um, but yeah, if you'd given it to them to start at the start of the winter, I think they'd have taken it. I watched a lot of this test match and the New Zealander who impressed me the most was Tom Latham. I know over the past couple of years, he's scored some really, really big hundreds. He's got a great average. He averages over 40 in test cricket. Um, a brace of 52s? He scored a brace, yeah, a brace of 52s um, against a really good attack who are actually bowling really well when the ball was doing all sorts. I call him uh, an, an aggressive lever of a cricket ball. He nice. was out. He was out leaving um, a straight one in the second innings, and I think he was out leaving a straight one against England as well um, to Stuart Broad. I've got no problem with people who leave it and and and, and get bold. It's even a middle stip stump just cartwheels backwards. Well, I th- so I think Latham leaves it on length quite a lot, um, and you know I, I don't think there's any difference nicking one when it's fifth sixth something you didn't need to play it and leaving a straight one either way you're both out either way it's an error in judgment um i, I left one first ball after after drinks uh, for my club but i was i hadn't had any sleep at all and i got to 47 and batted like a god first ball after drinks middle stump how have you how have we gone stump. from how have we gone from tom latham to your 47 I, I thought you liked these kind of little asides <laughs> all right well, let's get back to the earnest tom latham yeah tom latham's an excellent lever of the ball but every now and then he misjudges it and he's a he's a nuggety and compact left-hander who's really moving up the the test rankings and becoming a real force to be reckoned with i, I was thinking uh, there's, there there's no um, there's, there's probably no opener in world cricket that I'd rather have in difficult conditions right now anyway, than, back than to Tom my Latham. Thought, all right, fine. No, 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 agreed, agreed. And uh, you mentioned Carl Jameson as well. I saw that 49. Yeah. And it was at a kind of key-ish moment in the game because they needed a first in his lead. Uh, and he looks like a serious find. You know, he's eight and a half feet tall. He's, you know, technically good with the bat. Um, and picked up four for in the first test, and you said he picked up a few in the second as well. He, he took a five for his man of the match. Right, took a five yeah. for in that second test as well. Superb. So they found another one. Then it's, you'll it's remember, Phil. I'm sure that a few Naturally, years ago uh, in Wisden Cricket Monthly, when we did our best young players in the world, uh, he featured in that in that list. Uh, this was about three years ago, uh, and then nothing it didn't seem to make any noises for two or three years. Uh, but you guys knew. We knew. I'd <laughs> sort of forgotten. <laughs> I knew, then I didn't know, and now I know again. Uh, and now I know, finally. Well, well we, haven't, we haven't actually got to the, 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 real, the real crux of, of my moment of the week. So, obviously, I was excited by New Zealand win. It was a really good test match. Sure you were. But it's what it's done to the World Test Championship. Right, really here we go. Got me going. You've done a, what's called a deep dive on this, haven't you? Yes. Well, well, kind of. I'm, I'm just very excited by it. So, basically, before the New Zealand-India series, it looked like we are going to have an Australia... India final, India had got the maximum number of points you could possibly have after three series. Australia have got almost almost 100% record in the competition. But the win opens it up. So a reminder, you, there's 120 points on offer for every series and each team plays six series of varying lengths. Um, so each match is, is worth a different number of points depending on how many tests there are in the series. But at the moment, England are in fourth place with 146 points after two series. They clean sweep their next two test series. They would go ahead of India in the table with both sides having played four series each midway through the 2020 summer. This would leave them on 386 points ahead of the series against Pakistan at the back end of the 2020 summer. Should England win that 3-0, they would go on to 506 points with just the India series to play. India's penultimate series, however, is away to Australia. Um, obviously, they won in late 2018, but that was against an Australia side missing Warner Smith before Labuschagne got great. 
Should Australia win that series, say, 3-1 or even draw it 2-2, you could have this brilliant scenario where India would have to beat England 4-0 or 5-0 to qualify for the World Test Championship final. Um, New Zealand are in a very good position as well. They've got 180 points off the three series. Um, they're three, they've, they only play two test series. So if they win their last six tests, which are Bangladesh away, Pakistan and West Indies at home, they'll end the qualification period on 540 points, which I don't think anyone's going to beat. Australia, as I said, are doing very well. So I think between those four teams and maybe Pakistan as well, who um, are midway through this Bangladesh series, they're, they're doing quite well. Um, it, it is all so, open. So theoretically, England could lose 3-0 against India by your calculation. There's a scenario where England could lose 5-0 and still qualify. Okay. But how good would it be? I mean, it would be a real vindication for the for the system, which is obviously a little bit flawed and we've criticised quite a bit. But if England go into a, the final test of an India series 4-0 down, but knowing that a win or even avoiding defeat yeah. could get them to a World Test Championship final, that was kind of what the whole thing was built for, really. So, mm. that, that, so these dead rubbers actually start to... It, it, it's got something. echoes of the early 80s test series when you used to go out to India. India would win the first game and then they would block it to death <laughs> for literally four test matches, 20-odd yeah. days of cricket. If England need to get away with a 3 or 4-0 <laughs> defeat, then... You're batting Stokes at 10 and you're batting nine batsmen before it and Jimmy can play if he wants to, aren't you? You well, imagine that. A, Win the it, toss and bat for four wait, days. Getting wait. Nick Compton out of retirement. Yeah, bring him, in, bring him back. Trot. Bring him back. Bring him all back, Kenny. Get back in. Um, yeah, bring him all. When you were talking about Mark Wood and you were, you were saying, oh, well, you know, the Sri Lanka series is just a two-test series. I was thinking about the World Test Championship. England needs England need to win pretty much every test match in 2020 to have a really good chance because... The, the way India have played at home and the way England have played in Asia, it's unlikely that England are going to do much better than lose 3 or 4 nil. In order to qualify for the final and allow that to happen, they need to win every Test match. So every Test match is so important. Yeah, and it's a, it's a good point. And it's a, it's a very good point. In years gone by, you look at a, a poxy two-Test series, truth be told, tacked on at the end of a pretty Test-heavy heavy winter, and think, all right, well, you know, it'd be good if they won it, but we all move on. But you're right, there's more jeopardy now attached to every game, and that is unquestionably good for the Test game. I would say, even though England have shown some brilliance at times, they've not been great at stringing together win after win after win, whatever the conditions, really. Uh, West Indies, they should whitewash over here. To beat Pakistan 3-0, three, three that would be a really good achievement. If they do manage to do that against Pakistan's bowling attack with Babar Azam just looking better and better um, so I think England has still got a long long way to go to in a bit, to be in a position where they can lose 4-0 and still get into the World Test Championship final I wasn't suggesting that was a probability <laughs> um, but I do genuinely think having looked at it I think an Australia-New Zealand final is probably what I think at the moment New Zealand just need to win six tests and I don't think anyone's going to get more than 540 points Australia have got to play Bangladesh away India at home and South Africa away That's so you're, you're sticking your neck on the line now saying you think India will miss out yeah I, I think that Australia away series is, is going to be really tricky for them to get um, even even half the points from that series. And I think and that opens it up. Getting zero points in a series is quite a big deal. And also it means that England's test win here at the end of the summer, that could be crucial. That'd be absolutely huge beating Australia in, in the last acid test when Australia had already retain, retained the urn. Um, so I like it. It gives added meaning to basically every test match. Um, and therefore our lives. And our lives as well. Moving on, the total prize money of the 100 will be split equally among men and women cricketers taking part this year. The total prize budget was £600,000, so there'll be 300000 for each tournament. Joe, is that a good move? 
Uh, it sounds like a good news story, and and it is. I mean, it, it's certainly a step in the right direction. But I have to say, if that money is up for grabs, surely it would be better distributed amongst all the teams that are participating mm. uh, in the women's tournament who are getting a fraction of what the men are being paid for the men's 100, rather than just holding that money back for the winners of the tournament. To me, that seems a wrong-headed way about it. Um, right intentions... Uh, wrongly delivered i think just on the the question of fractions uh it's a tiny fraction as well uh the women's average salary in the hundred is 12 percent of of the men's um the lowest paid of the the female players in it will be offered three grand the lowest paid male cricketer will be offered 30 grand uh that is stark and it's a it's a gap that is too vast uh, for many people's co- uh, comfort and while I understand the weary old principle you know the men create most of the interest and most of the the money so therefore they have most of the pie that does not sit comfortably with me at all. also for, for me one of the big points is when you're comparing the numbers between the two tournaments the, the highest paid woman is being paid half as much as the lowest paid man and the highest paid women in the tournament definitely bring in more interest than the, the guys on 30k. In, well, just look at the way the tournament's being advertised. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Speaking on the Today programme, Beth Barrett-Wild, the, the head of the women's competition, called it a symbolic gesture that the ECB are proud of. Um, it's an interesting choice of words. I think it is pure, purely symbolic. Um, well, it, it, that's, it, it feels like they realise they've not got it right on the, on the wages. Mm. And have tried to make up for it with exactly a symbolic gesture. Not these words I'd have used if I was ECB, because I think that's what it is, and it yeah. should be more than that. So my biggest problem with it is that so 150,000 of that 300,000 for the women's competition is on offer just for the winning side. Presuming that sum is evenly split between the all members of the 15 women's squad, that would give each player an additional 10k. In some cases, that is more than quadrupling the amount of money that players will take home in that competition. Mm. If the 300,000 pot was allocated across all the 120 players taking part in the competition, that would actually almost double the salaries of the lowest paid players. So they've got this pot available for the women's tournament that they are very unevenly splitting. And because of how little the women are being played, it's a significant amount of money. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you couldn't have put it better. This is the... This is not the best use. If that's the money that's available, even if you take away the equal pay argument, if that's the money available, this is not the best way to use it across the women's competition. Yeah. Also, just on the on a human level, I get the, the boring old economic argument. You know, it's, it's draining. But what price, effort, commitment, the human challenge, the the whole precariousness of of the whole endeavour. You know, living out of a suitcase, dealing with the agonies of defeat as well as the the joys of the wins. All of that is thrown into the mix. Um, those experiences and what's expected of you is not a tenth of of what is received. It's mm. just not. It's just not acceptable. And hopefully, and, it will be changed. And they've also. I mean, it was the ECB were the ones that decided to bring these two tournaments under the same umbrella. So this is the main reason why they have to start mm. being paid, if not equally, then much more oh, equally. Uh, yeah, I mean, so so Barrett Wild did say to the ECB's credit, um, they are going to be treating the players from both tournaments as equally as possible during the actual tournament. So the players will be staying in the same uh, quality of hotels. Overseas players will all be flown in at the same level, irrespective of whether they're, they're in the men's and women's competition. Which it, which which is a which is a good move. Um, yeah, and fair enough. Credit yeah, where it's due. Definitely. Yeah. 
Um, elsewhere, Wisden's Tar Hashim wrote a lovely piece in Wisden.com about Mo Bobat, the ECB's performance director, and uh, the, Eng- the England Lions tour that's, that's gone on, um, that's just finished just now, actually. He comes across as a really impressive man who's very careful with his choice of words and has just really thought about every step of, of like what is the purpose of an England's Lions mm. tour and had some really good answers. Yeah, it was an interesting piece. And he, whilst obviously the, the prime goal is still developing players for international cricket, he seems much more results focused. Um, and if that means bringing some of the not established, but almost established internationals back to the Lions to benefit their game and also benefit the players around him, then that's something they're more willing to do. I mean, that, the fact that England Lions hadn't beaten Australia A before until now, even he admitted he was surprised by. Uh, and there is that sense that the more you win, the more you get used to winning and the more it will happen. And I thought the, the line that stuck out for me was um, talking about these these players walking out at the MCG even taking a long-haul flight over to Australia, all of these yeah. things mean that when you do it and the ashes is on the line, you're so much better prepared for it psychologically than you would be otherwise. Because let's be honest, there have been England cricketers over the years that have walked out for a debut in the ashes who look like rabbit in the headlights and, and haven't been able to deal with the the atmosphere, the occasion. And whilst it's still difficult to completely prepare anyone, or it's impossible to completely prepare someone for that, this should go a long, a long way to helping, uh, particularly when you go out there and win. Yeah, um, and I thought there was a really interesting line from the piece where he was where he was talking to the players before the tournament, before they went out there, and was talking about exactly what it takes to win in Australia. Just from a cricket point of view, he said the last four times England have won a Test match in Australia, they haven't won many in the last twenty years. Three of the occasions England scored five hundred. Someone's got about four hours. And so it's not t- just about going to Australia; it's about how do you actually win a series in Australia? Exactly, and and in the in two of the three four day games, the third one was kind of rained off, but two of the three they. They averaged 500. They made 600 and 420. Uh, and from there, you you dictate cricket matches. It's not rocket science, mm. uh, as he says himself, actually. Um, my, my weekly Dan Lawrence klaxon. Oh, sorry, sorry. But Tom Wesley said yesterday he's the most talented player he's ever seen. And he spoke about a shift that he made technically towards the back end of last summer, mm. where he'd been triggering and over-triggering. And uh, oh, literally overnight, he stopped. Uh, and he made a hundred. I think he said it was at, at Hampshire, but he couldn't quite remember exactly where it was. But he thought it was at Hampshire. Literally overnight, he'd been shuffling around all over all over the place, and then he just stopped. Literally overnight, made a hundred the following day. Uh, and there's a piece on Crick Info with Dan Lawrence um, that's just gone up actually, where he he outlines how he's a lot stiller at the crease. Um, he's obviously been the star of that tour, but there's been others as well, and. It's good to see that there are test players going back into that setup as well to fine tune and to get more exposure to these kinds of conditions. Mm. Uh, it's been it's been a proper success this one. Mm. Um, elsewhere in international cricket, Bangladesh won an absolute thriller against Zimbabwe. Tammy Mikbal hit the highest score ever hit by Bangladeshi in ODI cricket. Bangladesh boasted 322 for eight, and Zimbabwe fell agonisingly short, hitting 318 for eight themselves. Donald Tirapano hit a sensational 55 not out of 28 balls from number nine to nearly take Zimbabwe home. South Africa have won their ODI series against Australia with a game to spare. A really impressive result for South Africa considering they're against a pretty much full strength Australia side and they've got quite a few inexperienced players themselves. And it's those inexperienced players who've won the series to them. Yanaman Milan, a 23-year-old playing his first ODI series, hit 129 not out in the second ODI. Klaassen hit 100 in the first ODI. Lungi Ngidi took a sixfer in the second one and he became the first, the fastest South African to 50 ODI wickets, beating whose record? Rabada. No. Stain. 
No. Could be here a while. Oh. Someone man. who's played in the last 10 years. South African player. Yeah, so yeah. South African record. Right, yeah. okay. Uh, ugh, this is high-end content. Yeah. Um, Henry Williams. Who? <laughs> 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 uh, it's, it's actually Lenoir Bay Totsobi, obviously. Oh, yeah, um, he was in the number one, number one ranked ODO bowler for a little while. He's got an amazing got that, yeah. ODO record. He's got he was the one who came to Essex for a couple of weeks and said it was the worst experience <laughs> of his life. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, at least he had a very good ODI career. I forgot to mention it earlier in the show, really should have done, but Thailand's effort against Pakistan in the T20 World Cup is really is one of the cricketing stories of the week. They hit one of the highest scores of the tournament, 153 before rain deprived them of the opportunity of registering their first ever World Cup And win. no reserve day. No reserve day for that group stage game. Um, this that... podcast needs a reserve day. <laughs> <laughs> um, an amazing, amazing effort, particularly when their strongest suit is probably their, their bowling. Well, they'd have won that game. That's the. Yeah. That's the I mean, their bowling is is excellent, particularly the slow bowlers. Um, and I didn't think they were capable of posting that kind mm. of score. Um, yeah, so that, was, that was a that was great to see, even even though they didn't get the result they ultimately wanted. There's always so much cricket to talk about, even <laughs> even though so when that it was a like kind of level of exhaustion <laughs> there. Yes, yeah, as, as though you were just going to kind of I let your head euphoria. hit the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much cricket. Um, finally, weird scorecards. We asked you to send ah, them in, yes. and you didn't disappoint. So, uh, Ross Rodgers. Ross, Ross Rogers, Ross P. Rogers. Ross P. Rogers, that yeah. is, not Ross Rogers. Elder brother of Ronnie Rogers, my mate. <laughs> okay. Well, he's pulled out the fifth Ashes test from the 2002-03 series. Andy Bickle, for some reason, came in at number three with over an hour of the day to go and scored 49 or 58 balls. And Ross asked, I never really found out why. He came so, here. So it's, neither, it's our Ponting, job to find out. Ponting, isn't it? Martin, War, Love, and Gilchrist. So neither a night watchman nor a pinch hitter. Indeed. Well, I, guess he, I, guess, I guess he came in as a night watchman and thought, screw it, this is my chance. But then that's so early to come in as a night watchman. Yeah. It's a mystery. We need to find out. We need to speak to, yeah. to Ponting. He would have been captain at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, War, War would have been captain. Oh, yeah. Steve yeah, Moore, of course, yeah. it was that game. Um, yeah. But it ultimately cost him. That was the, that was the one England won that series. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, the, the, um, the Caddick final well, test match. We should match get Andy Bickle on the podcast to talk through his, his famous innings. The, the two well, Andys. So famous innings. The two Andys, Bickle and Caddick. We, we do talk, need to talk find out. R- Ross, Ross P. Rogers. That's, uh, that's one for next week. Deserves to find out. Oscar Ratcliffe has spotted a trend. Oh, that, that I really one. like. Basically, early T20 lineups were t- totally bonkers. Um, so Kent's top five in a 2003 T20 against Hampshire was Peter Trigo, Andrew Simons, James Treadwell at three. He's called 24 or 14 against Wazzy Macram, Mark Paid Elam, off. Matt Walker, and Greg Blewett. Um, Greg Blewett yeah. at six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Just and Wazzy, ride. I think Wazzy Macram retired two weeks after being <laughs> really? dispatched by Treadwell. Yeah. Um, but I f- so that that led me to look at some more early T Twenty Cup scorecards. From remarkable, that you get any other work done? Yeah, it's really <laughs> the amount of scorecards this, you're this, trawling this through. This is this is very much in my spare time. Um, <laughs> so Leicestershire's first ever T Twenty match. Their top seven was Darren Stevens opening the batting with Verinda Saywag. Obviously, uh, Brad Hodge. Darren Maddy, Phil DeFreitas, captain at five. Nixon and Jeremy Snape was their top seven. In the opposition, it was it, they were playing against Yorkshire, who had Chris Silverwood, England coach. I think it's his birthday today, so happy birthday, Chris, if you're listening. Lovely. Um, Ryan Sidebottom, <laughs> Tim Bresnan, Michael Lum, who bowled a couple of overs, Stephen Fleming, Craig White. Yuvrad Singh, who got 70-odd mm-hmm. in that game, uh, playing alongside Richard Blakely, who made his first-class debut alongside... 
Jeffrey Boycott. Indeed, so, yeah, which appeared in Wisdom Cricket Monthly. That, that's how I know Crystal it. Silver and, and digital. Silver yeah. and sidebottom weren't opening the batting there. No, no that you, wasn't the order. Right, that wasn't that the order. Was good, no, but okay. just uh, no, nice a com- nice combination. Um, j- just to players. clarify to our listeners here, we're not having you on. Saturday night I received uh, <laughs> the following text message from Yaz Rana at uh, quarter to nine. Uh, stats are live up your Saturday night. Peter Sutcher, the best bowling average among England spin bowlers in the 90s to play at least 10 tests. <laughs> Saturday night. In my defence, I was working then. So it wasn't... You're always working. I, I wasn't like sneaking off the loose, sending that message. <laughs> <laughs> um, think... Should you be texting Phil whilst you're meant to be working, yes? Is that a good use of your work hours? But I was... That, that, that Peter Sutch stat was part of my work. And it's, <laughs> it's turned into content, so... <laughs> Arguably too much content. It's it's the stat that keeps on giving. Um, And finally on the scorecard front, uh, Hamish Colley has sent in the Cheltenham and Gloucester Trophy final at Lords in 2005. Um, He said it's not particularly weird. It's just just a great scorecard. So Hampshire's team was John Crawley, Nick Pothas, Sean Irvine, Peterson, Watson, Mascarenas, Andy Bickle, twice in an episode, uh, Lamb, Sean Newdow, guy called Latouf. And Chris Tremlett at 11, uh, and Warwickshire had Neil Carter, Nick Knight, Ian Bell, Jim Troughton, Trevor Penny, Jonathan Trott, Alex Loudon, Dougie Brown, Ashley Giles, Tony Frost, specialist keeper at 10, and Mikhail and Tini. Have, you, have you got the scorecard there? Yeah, so did. Trott, did, Ian, did Ian Bell get 111, not out? No, he scored 54 of 82. Nick Knight. <laughs> <laughs> Nick. Also, Trott in that game seems to be playing as a bowling all-rounder. Uh, number six, yeah, yeah. And he bowled a oh, few yeah, overs as well, brilliant. didn't he? So he was, he was number six. Got three, was run out by Shane Watson, but he took three for thirty-five in the final, um, which, Did is, which is great. Peterson got five. Peterson got five. Yeah. So there you go. Redeemed, redeemed yourself. Redeemed yourself yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a Sean Irvine hundred that won, won it for won it for Hampshire. Um, yeah, great, great game. Shane Watson <laughs> took a three for, <laughs> and, and so did, and so did so did Andy Bickle. Um, so you lost in a reverie. Now bring yeah, it back. Come so on. right. So if you've got. Any scorecards like that, do send them in. Just tag us on Twitter and we'll we'll respond. We're always desperate to get them in. You could maybe set up like a WhatsApp group that you share <laughs> these things, Yes, I don't want to be in it, but you could maybe do it. It, it gets more lively it's on a, Saturday a, a 8.45 on a Saturday. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time oh, for man. for this week's show. Thanks, Phil and Joe. Cheers, yes. It's been a pleasure. Um, we'll be back next week as usual. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends, get them to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra kind, you can always leave us a five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.